Hello, this is Chris. Welcome to another episode of The Reenactor's Corner, where this week we'll be meeting two people who share our passion for living history. The only difference is they're reenacting a time period that's over 500 years ago, so have no photographic references to go on. To find out if that's a blessing or a curse, join me now as I talk to Todd and Ari, who are both hosts on the amazing How to Medieval podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is a really fun, special crossover episode. Uh, how's everybody doing tonight? Doing good. Excited. I'm super excited for this and uh, you know, I'm really glad that we're doing this because I've complained before about how, in my experience, there's like a really hard line between 20th century historical reenacting and living history and people that do earlier periods. Even though I know some people who do both, it seems like these two areas of this living history hobby are like really separated and uh, I'm really pleased to be able to kind of uh, do work on this little mini project that involves people who do, uh, you know, widely differing living history areas. Yeah, and I think it's really, it's curious to, to listen to you guys talk about certain elements of modern or mostly modern reenacting that you can't really wrap your head around in a, say, like early medieval or classical context because especially when it comes to like uniformity and things and when when i was in doing 19th century stuff i i felt exactly what you were talking about chris the they're sort of like well we're rev war guys we can't hang out with those civ war guys and it was and you're all geeks playing dress up i don't get why there's this sort of i guess latent animosity because you're in the wrong time period or something i mean especially you know, I think it's never been more important for us who are doing this historical stuff to try to, you know, make contact and form a network with other people who are doing it because, um, you know, history obviously has become like this weird uh, battleground sort of thing, especially in the United States, you know. Right now, it is a crazy time where history is uh, whatever you want it to be, which is, you know, uh, whole topic and on its own, but the history nerds have to unite so we can kind of protect this uh, of what we got, no matter what period. Yeah, like pr- we should, we, we kind of need to fight for our right to be history nerds. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it's like to to be kind of like you know this is purely historical. This is about history, and to not necessarily have to view everything that's ever happened in human endeavor within like a modern political lens. You know, it's actually probably a refreshing change of perspective in that there were many as we learn doing reenactments is that there are a lot of perspectives out there that in their context made sense even if they're alien or or is sometimes even appalling to us today and losing that perspective is i think goes a lot towards a lot of this you know, crazy infighting that goes on because no one's able to step back and take a look at somebody else's perspective on things. So for for people who maybe haven't heard me before, right, my name's Chris and uh, I reenact World War II and I do uh, World War II German and Soviet impressions. 
And so these, both of these impressions that I do are like kind of historically bad guys, depending on your perspective, right? From an American perspective from different times. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a struggle for me to do this stuff without like harsh judgments about the historical period that I'm portraying. And kind of the only way that I can do it is by sort of stepping away from moral judgment and just being able to accept and appreciate that these people that I'm studying, that I'm portraying and maybe teaching about, right, they are historical characters and they were men of their time. They didn't have our moral compass. They didn't view things the way that we do. They didn't have the information that we do, right? They lived in a different world. Um, and like, I'm, I'm sure that's the same for, for medieval stuff and really for, for all historical portrayals. You can't, you can't look at this stuff in a modern, through a modern lens and expect that everyone is going to conform with our, our modern day value system. Yeah, exactly. We get that a lot, especially, you know, for middle ages. Um, it, it comes from a lot of the homeschool kids, uh, you know, the, the moms that are really in, in uh, you know, into their child's educations. And they asked us the questions, you know, the typical modern day uh, social questions. What did women do? Did they fight? Why not? You know, why was there per persecution in this and that? And it's like it's 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 hard sometimes to explain like they did not think the way we thought or think today. They, you know, and it's it's not because they're barbaric. It wasn't because they were, um, you know, bad people. It's just that was the, the thought process at the time. And you know, that stuff evolves over time and or de-evolves in some places. But that's one struggle, I think. And I'm sure you guys have the same in your genre because, you know, hey, everyone that fought in World War II on the German army was Nazis. No, false. You know, there, there was there wasn't. And, you know, the Soviets were, you know, communist barbarians. You know, they're doing what they thought was right on their side at the time. Um, so it's, it's definitely a hard one today, especially today, because people want they want that perfect world they want they want everyone treated equally every fair but it's 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 it wasn't like that you know history is is violent and, it, and in some cases it's not fair no i know you guys must struggle with some of the same things that that we struggle with i mean uh i've seen hysterical news headlines about all kinds of reenacting from from civil war stuff oh, yeah. that has confederates mm -hmm. through like uh even renaissance festivals that you know there's allegations right that like right-wing people are trying to use it for recruiting or this you know, crazy stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Crusaders kind of have it the worst with when it comes to people either completely misunderstanding what they're trying to portray, which is, I think, something that people who, you know, doing German impressions you can relate to. But also you see the, the Viking reenactment and things get a lot of misappropriation and the messages, regardless of what they actually were at the time, are now completely indecipherable because of what people have tried to make them mean now. And that's, that is difficult to overcome sometimes as well. And that's actually not doing a crusader impression or a Viking impression, seeing that happen to other areas of history and redoubles my interest in dispelling myths to maybe prevent other parts of history to be regarded in the zeitgeist incorrectly and i really hate that i mean we we complain about oh people think that you can't move around in armor and i mean that's petty compared to some people trying to say that no well uh, you know an entire culture of people for 200 years were not inherently you know racist and so it's uh 
it's weird because I feel like we have this opportunity to help if if we get the word out. And then, of course, you turn around and no one's allowed to go out and talk to anybody or <laughs> get within yeah. six feet of them. So, <laughs> so Sure. I think it's good to address that stuff, but we should get into some real history nerd type stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want... I. I have actually never, I will tell you, I have never talked to someone who did like medieval uh, reenacting in basically all of the time that I've been a reenactor. I've never had a chance to really, you know, learn about what what uh, reenacting that time period is like and pick someone's brain. And I guess I got to tell you, uh, sometimes I'm really jealous that you guys don't have uh, photos or like a lot of extant examples to work from because... Um, I think that it would be more fun sometimes to have to do the type of research that I'm sure that you guys have to do with very limited surviving originals, sometimes no surviving originals of certain things, and go through what documentation does exist and try to extrapolate and investigate, you know, what that, what, what their material culture was like or uh, what a certain thing would have looked like or how a certain tool mm-hmm. would have been used. It definitely right? is, is um, a big difference when it comes because it almost – for, especially for World War II, you almost have the answers to the test. Um, you know, it, it's not that long ago. It's it's just the last century. And you actually have, um, you know, items, you know, weapons, clothing, equipment, uh, rations. You see guys opening rations from World War II and stuff that are still, you know, I wouldn't say edible. But it, uh, that, that's one thing I, 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 you know, I was thinking when I was getting ready to do this is like, what are some differences and, you know, um, some things you're kind of jealous about, you know, because, you have a, a sources there. I mean, I have, I was given by my mother, um, field artillery officer's manual, um, uh, Fort Sill, uh, 19, I think 43. And it has a guy's name in it and everything. And you literally have history in your hands. Um, but you all right for medieval, it, it, you, you don't have as many actual artifacts to hold, but the investigation you have, the biggest thing we have are, are the, are the artwork. And, uh, that's about, I think the best we can go off to it's something, you know, and in, uh, sources that were have been written down and again those are far far in between so um yeah it's definitely it's definitely an adventure to try to track this stuff down and keep your modernisms and your fantasy and your dungeon and dragons and stuff (laughs) and and your childhood you know uh coming up with knights and castles and all that stuff but what what it really was like but on the other hand, which is interesting is you say oh well without pictures you get to have this um journey of exploration it also you know you guys cut out a whole lot of the divisiveness that we sometimes encounter trying to explore what a medieval artifact or technique might have been like or when you're trying to say as a group vet outfits and since the material culture is non-existent and you sort of have to do exploratory archaeology and make a lot of suppositions to get to a conclusion, there's a whole lot of like bitter argument over, well, would your hosen be joined or not? And you get these like tiny granular problems that become huge issues because there isn't an answer. And it just becomes, I think this way because of what I've read. And well, somebody else might've read the same thing differently or had a different scrap of inventory. Like we are effectively taking people's Walmart receipts and trying to figure out what they dressed like. And that causes a whole lot of headache, which when I, when I see you guys with world war two and, you know, even as, as recent as like the first world war, 
I mean, you guys not only have, you, you guys have a lot of arguments that you can't have, but it does mean that you guys don't have nearly as much expression unless you guys are doing a civilian impression, but then you don't see a lot of those on the battlefield, I'm guessing. Having never been to a World War II reenactment, I'm guessing it's mostly uniformed people. Yeah, there's like, I'm sure it's similar in some ways to medieval reenacting where you've got like a lot of different types of reenactments and what kinds of reenactments you can go to kind of depends on where you live and what kind of reenactments happen where you're at. But uh, yeah, definitely there's no question really like whether you're talking a public display or a private like reenactment or an immersion or whatever it is, the military stuff always dominates World War II. There's there are people who do civilian. There are people who do civilian extremely well, but um, their their impressions aren't applicable to every event. And even at the events that they do go to, they're totally outnumbered by like the people portraying you know some variation of a frontline infantry unit. Which is interesting because I guess it works both ways depending on your personal preferences. But two two equivalents of a I guess the equivalence of like a private you know your two general common peasant levy soldiers can both be authentic and accurate and look nearly completely different. They could be wearing similar outfits but have vastly different colors and decorations and maybe configuration of equipment while both being accurate representations of someone what someone might look like at that time, standing shoulder to shoulder, whereas two, two privates in a frontline infantry unit in a modern warfare style has to look a specific way. And I find that I would find that limiting in a way. And I don't know how that it is. It is limiting, you know, and, and I, I feel that limitation sometime because sometimes because um, that expresses itself in a variety of different ways in like world war two reenacting where you've got people who really want to set themselves apart. And because there's not really a historical way to do that, they wind up doing stuff that's like ahistorical, you know, out of a desire to look different. They, they, they kind of inadvertently ruin their impression by presenting a variety of things, each of which could theoretically have happened, but taken as a whole, it's like really unlikely, you know? But look, I was I was starting to sweat a little bit earlier listening to you guys talk about like divisive arguments <laughs> about interpretations of history. I mean, I can only imagine what that must be like because World War II reenactors will like fight to the death over what a photograph shows. You know what I mean? Which is not even open to interpretation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that goes for the uh, the uh, uh, miniatures and the the manuscripts that you see. You know, people will interpret different things. Uh, you know, a big one is like, was armor blackened? And you know, people pull up these pictures of armor that is, you know, apparently has a darker tone to it. And it's like, oh, that's just the, the paint they use or the pigment or it's aged. And it's like, people are going to defend what they want uh, and interpret what they want until, the, until they turn blue, you know? It's, and that, I think that's where, that's where we get that dis- divisiveness. Um, and they want, they want their, their toys to be the cool toys. And sometimes, you know, if you twist the facts, you know, you're not really doing it right. And you're kind of, like you said, you're kind of, kind of ruining it. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's there. Um, it's a sad part, I think of, of the hobby. Uh, it can definitely buzz kill the hobby, but you know, man, some of those paintings are really bad too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, they really are. And there's, there's just rabbits and snails killing everybody. So it's this what really happened back then. So, See, I love I love that, uh, but no, like 
you know, speaking of limiting, like I am one thing I'm really jealous of about pre 20th century and pre 19th century reenactors, especially is uh, that you guys have all like hand sewn stuff and that you can make your own clothes and make your own kit items, which I would love to be able to make my own kit items. I think that the kind of crafts craftsmanship aspect mm-hmm. is really cool but with world war ii stuff you cannot do that because this stuff was industrially mass produced yeah. and even with like a regular home sewing machine you can't make this stuff to make it convincingly you need like industrial machinery which is what was used to to mass produce these equipment and uniform items by the millions well, it's, um, a, it's like making a, a modern day parka and trying to do it at home by hand it just won't there's no way to make it look <laughs> right Exactly. It's like, you know, right. It it has to almost be factory made. And that goes for all kinds of World War II stuff, not just the uniforms, but even like the soldiers, simple haversacks and stuff. You know, it's like die cut leather pieces that are, you know, and and custom hardware, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of that has to be mass produced. Yeah, it's got to be rugged Um, for the time. Uh, And that's that's definitely one aspect, I think, that, that gets people really excited about you know pre-industrial industrial revolutionary kind of stuff where you know you can actually still make your kit by hand um you know i'm not a big when it comes to clothes sewing stuff i'm not a good craftsman uh, but the hobby's big enough for everyone's likes you know um you know collecting armor collecting you know making stuff by hand with wood or um wh- whatever it may be but it definitely for world war world war ii and uh, world war one time frame and i mean you can always do your modifications with your uh, sewing kit you know <laughs> make it realistic yeah, sure, but I mean, you know, there's only so much. Yeah, that's, that's right? and I love doing the but the great the thing is stuff. that you can have the product. You actually can touch and purchase some of the stuff that was actually used still, and have the real deal in your hand. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, to me, there's something about touching the actual historical stuff and learning about how it feels. Mm-hmm. You know, that really. That's part of how I got into reenacting. I started off being a collector of World War II stuff. Uh-huh. So yeah. real quick distraction, because you brought up haversacks, and I've been wondering this for like 20 episodes. Is a bread bag a bag you put bread in, or because it's kind of shaped like a loaf of bread? It's That's a good question. It's supposed to be for your bread. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know to what extent really people really had bread in there. See, that's the the first, not the only, but that's the first thing I had to go Google while listening to you guys talk. Was like, what do they keep talking about a bread bag? And so, <laughs> I love the, I love that. Yeah, it could be almost anything. It could be a cellophane bag, right? No, it's like a. Yeah, I, I had no idea. I know. I call it the. I, it, it, you know, we we would call it like the soldier's haversack or whatever, right? It's a little little bag on your belt. Yeah. The Germans liked calling stuff a bag. They called the uh, ammunition pouch the the bullets bag, and they called the bayonet. Holder was your bayonet bag. Efficient, uh, very efficient those people. Things. Well, you know, to be fair, they that's not a new concept because even in the like a medieval era, you have a they have what are called Panzerhosen, which are you know your armored hosen, like your your pants that are armored for when you want to go to war. And it's it's not like they're mincing words about what they're actually trying to get done with their material culture, which is uh, it's interesting how enduring that particular cultural artifact is i love the german language i love that they call a vacuum cleaner a dust sucker you know what i mean like why why not that's what it's doing exactly i noticed that we you had a whole episode on rank structure and such and that's one of those points where i think we really Mm -hmm. 
all aspects of the hobby, regardless of time period, have a similar problem because in I'm guessing in World War II, everyone wants to be an officer of some sort. They all want to be I don't know if everyone wants to be a general, but I'm guessing most people want to come in as some higher ranking muckety muck. And we get similar things to that in medieval in that everyone wants to be a knight and or a lord of some sort. And we have entire organizations like the SCA that is designed around, well, the ground floor for everybody is that everyone's a lord. So let's just get that out of the way and then we'll figure it out from there. And so I, I, I was found that really interesting to hear the parallels between the kind of, I guess, the counterintuitive method of rewarding people with rank. And then if you do that, everyone who shows up is now has rank, which means that your impression as a group is no longer authentic, which is kind of that backward spiral. And we get a lot of that, too. Yeah, it's kind of hard because you it's totally natural, I think, that you want to find ways to incentivize participation in your group if you're in charge of a reenactment group or organization. And, like, you know, rank promotions and awards, that's kind of, like, how the real world works for, you know, to, to recognize people's particip- participation or achievements. But, of course, you know, when you try to make that a direct parallel to reenactment, you get these authenticity compromises and it can be a really tricky situation. Yeah. I think for us, though, is everybody wants to portray, like Ori was talking about, like, you know, the higher status um, personas, but they they can't, the stuff's not cheap. And it's, if you're going to do it properly, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, for someone, especially new coming into the hobby, to jump right in and, and uh, to get that look and the, and the items, you know, you're just a knight with a suit of armor, um, depending on what the reenactment is and how, how what the event is. But still, you, you got to portray what comes with that as well. Um, you know, you have to have your entourage, your encampment, and all that good stuff. So, uh, one of my big pet peeves: I love simple kits in our period, basic footmen, you know, soldiers, like kind of like a line infantryman for you guys, I would think. Um, and and it's just sometimes simple is big, you know. Uh, you, and if you especially because it's easy to get into um and and i think revolutionary war guys civil war guys do a good job of the big units i'm sure you guys do like hey you're gonna come in you're gonna you're gonna be a private you know you're just gonna be a straight line infantry guy and let's get your kit the base kit right and then we can go from there um and that's what i think i think commoner no one wants to be oh joe the peasant you know what big deal but if you do it right your impression is gonna look great you know and people are gonna look at it and it's gonna from the outside looking in it's like wow that's that's awesome. You know, hand-sewn um, uh, mercantile or textile armor, you know, the light, you know, not having the full armor, but a helmet and maybe mail, uh, a simple medieval, like, pole arm that looks beefy and barbaric. But, again, it's an easy transition into the hobby. Don't get overwhelmed with all the, the silks and the, and the other materials. And, again, it's the small small uh, impressions that are actually large, you know. That's, it's, that's hard to sell to some people. We have this too in World War II where someone will say, well, at my age, I should, uh, my rank should be this, you know, uh, when in reality, that's not really how World War II worked, right? It wasn't based on your age and especially from a German or a Soviet perspective, right? These are conscript armies of totalitarian regimes that were desperate for manpower as the war went on. And like on the German side, they were drafting men. Uh, up to like the age of 60 in 1944 to, to be the you know basic new recruits in the army at the age of 59 or 60 years old. So um, 
yeah, it is. It can be hard to explain to someone that it's like, you know, there's really no reason why you can't come in as the basic soldier or the basic guy, whatever that is. Well, let me ask you this. I, here's a question that I have uh, since we're talking about kits and stuff. What is like the cost to put together like a basic footman kit for the medieval time period that's like reasonably authentic that's not going to get you laughed at at reenactment? Never ending. Well, if you want to do that, yeah, well, there's that. But if you want to put together like a just a civilian kit, I think it's actually you can put it together for like 250 to 500 dollars. It's really because I mean, there's like five things that you really mm-hmm. need to be a medieval peasant. You need a shirt and some sort of tunic or coat over the top of that hose and shoes and a belt, maybe. And that's it. I mean, even the hood and hat are optional and your your typical run of the mill commoner didn't have a lot of adornment and if you then want to go up to say okay well i've been called to war and you look at like a medieval seize of arms you your basic is just to have like a sword a spear a helmet and a shirt of chain of some sort like a hauberk or habergian and those if you get them fairly inexpensively could add no more and most of it's going to be your mail but you can add probably five six hundred dollars at the low end and and be ready to both do a civilian and a martial kit at the base level minimum for about twelve hundred dollars if you really know what you're doing make some of it yourself and things like that which i think probably makes it easier to get into medieval but then on the other end of the spectrum if you want like a proper nobleman's kit we're talking about doing it right and not looking wrong at being a noble you're looking at thousands like six seven maybe even like the harness when i'm done my when i say harness like my full suit of armor uh will be like twelve thousand dollars and that doesn't include the clothes and so so on the other end of the spectrum is there's a lot of money that goes into the other end but to just like step in as joe schmo the peasant you can get in and if you don't want to be in armor you can do it for five it's two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars, really, if you want. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's really cool. It's, it's it's definitely got a high end, a low end, and then like I was saying, like you get you get guys like Toby, uh, Tobias Capwell, um, and uh, Arnie Coates out there. He they have custom armor, you know, built for them, and this stuff's twenty four, thirty thousand dollars plus. Um, the the most expensive one I know of is Kingsley. I think he his jou- his most recent jousting suit was like eighty. So I can't even wrap my mind yeah, around the right. idea that your some of your outfits caught like are the same price as what like a vehicle yeah. well, for World you, War Two. So cost. so that and that is that's period. It's so period because you know the, the 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 example we use is this stuff back then would cost the amount of a sports car and you know a fortune then is the same fortune now. It's just you know modern money, but it's stuff. It's crazy, but it's it's made. There's only a handful of master craftsmen that that do this stuff to as to a high authentic you know authentic uh, level and people pay and it's it's just crazy but like you always say it's you got you got the guy that owns a video game company obviously he's gonna um have the the best of the best and and he has you know this guy has horses and his whole riding stables and land but it, you got todd cornell who wants to just you know play medieval every once in a while uh that's what people see you know like oh it's so expensive it's this and that but it's like no nah, man really it's or even for for females for women it's 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 let's start off the basics what do you need you need stuff to cover you up um okay and it, and it's also time period based too uh you know 
costs go up and down based on your time period. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just kind of where you start from. And an average point, like my, I have a, a harness that was made by an armor in California. And it's nowhere top of the line. And the whole suit cost, you know, $1,500. And uh, I had to make tweaks and, you know, and, and stuff like that to it still because, you know, it wasn't custom, super custom fit. And uh, I think that's where people kind of get their eyes are bigger than their wallet. You know, they jump into some of this stuff and um, that's what eventually they get turned off because they're like, oh, I'm putting too much money in it, into this uh, you know, hobby. And uh, as the great Ian Lispina would say, you know, uh, buy right the first time is you don't buy twice. <laughs> you guys were talking about a vehicle. Well, it, it's an interesting parallel in that we like to use the phrase sometimes that the the armored knight, especially in the, like the late high medieval, you're talking about the 14th, 15th century, by that point where you, you have full head-to-toe plate, was the equivalent of the tank in the modern in the modern world. They were usually... They were mounted or on foot, and they were effectively invulnerable except in mass, like if you were mobbed or if you were targeted by somebody who specifically knew how to fight somebody else who wore harness. So other other knights were the biggest threat to a knight in armor. And, you know, the cost of a good harness is the equivalent of the cost of a good World War II vehicle because effectively they were your mechanized armor uh, the armored division was your knights your your mounted or even your your uh dismounted knight depending on the culture because you know england most of the the men at arms and the knights fought on foot and then compared to say like france and italy where they send spent more time in the saddle yeah, in our in uh, our period and, in our, and in, fought from in a, yeah in in, in, in 15th yeah, century in, now if you go back to the early you know the 12th or 11th century england did still fight on on you know horses go Oh yeah, all the way up until about the Baron's yeah. War, they were primarily mounted. So, but that's that's an interesting and thing. Another thing about paying a lot for like a, a suit of armor is that unlike dress clothes, which are you know just made of material, you have to really you actually kind of have to learn how to wear it in a way that it doesn't physically damage you. And poorly made armor can hurt you instead of prevent injury. You can you can get physically injured just by wearing and trying to move and, and do a little bit of fighting in a poorly made, poorly fitted suit of armor that you're not, you don't have any experience in. So it's sort of like, you know, you can get yourself hurt in a truck if you don't know how to drive it. I love that there's like some remnant traits of like the economies of like medieval times being cost prohibitive for people to be, you know, knights or, or whatever that like carries over today. Mm -hmm. That is kind of, you know, it must... I'm sure there are a lot of people who would love to portray uh, a knight in a suit of armor, and they can't do it because they don't have the funds for the the armor, right? Just like how it must have been. That's a long huge ago. sticking point with lots of people because that's what that's where you get the reenactorism of the the pauper knight and people bringing in suits of you know wearing clearly a historic outfits because they want to be the knight and they you know they grabbed a breastplate and a helmet and they get just enough to. That they feel, especially to like the public's eye, they look knightly. But to an, you know, when you actually learn about what it was you would be expected to wear, they look they don't look right, and that's a huge problem because at that point you're not saying you yourself are in unworthy or invalid, and you have to say that you know because you can't afford it, you don't get to play at that level. That's a really hard conversation to have with some people. 
Yeah, no, we have a similar thing in World War II reenacting where to do an officer impression badly costs about the same as to do an enlisted impression badly. You just get the <laughs> different insignia or whatever. Yeah. But in the reality of World War II on the German side, officers, generally speaking, had to supply their own uniforms. And although it was a, you know more appropriate in some situations for officers to be wearing upgraded enlisted style field uniforms, in other situations, really, officers should be wearing like finely tailored uh, garments that in historical sense were made for these people, specifically tailor made for them by some of the finest tailors of Europe at that time with deluxe materials. And to get something like that made for you today is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you've got, um, it's, it's like I could, um, if I was hosting an event and I wanted somebody to be an officer, I could choose somebody that I thought was qualified for it, but maybe they don't want to spend $3,000 or something for what it takes to be able to do that role correctly just at that event. Um, or it's like another another similar thing with World War II reenacting is that if someone is a squad leader in the German armed forces at that time, the, the squad leader in an infantry unit would have been armed with a machine pistol. And whereas your standard rifle costs less than $1,000, a machine pistol that you can use for reenacting, if you get like a blank firing one that is made for this, that could be $4,000. And a real uh, transferable machine gun is much more expensive than that and of course comes with other legal restrictions and headaches as well that can be expensive on top of that so mm -hmm. yeah there's definitely uh you know it, it does sometimes it doesn't matter how good you would be in a leadership role it costs money to present an impression like that and you know that's comes easier for some people than other people yeah right? and we we talked about this before too because it's an expensive hobby and that's where where groups come in you know groups help you out you know you got your loaner kit and all that stuff and they can help you guide you through because i think a lot of people start to go to the internet the dark evil internet and they start to search you know you go in right now on your computer and put medieval clothing and oh my goodness you're going to get some horrible sure. horrible stuff um and if no one if, if someone new to the hobby and doesn't really have a mentor or or someone to help guide them um mistakes you know are going to be costly you're going to you're going to spend more just as much money in, in, in bad kit uh, that you're going to end up replacing in the future off these sites, you know, over time. And it's just that, that that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm guilty. You know, when I started getting back into it, I was buying stuff that I thought, Oh, that looks, you know, basing experience off 10, 15 years prior, you know, but now I'm, I'm always old older to do more research and had more resources at hand, but I, I've made bad choices. And it's like, man, I wish all the money I spent on some, some junk I could have, you know, put that towards a good piece of kit. Yeah. Have there been some like breakthroughs or advances in our knowledge of those times from like a living history perspective that has enabled medieval reenacting to like be better with time? I mean, if you look at photographs from people doing this stuff in the eighties, is it like much better now? <laughs> I think resources, you know, you have better resources. The obviously communication um, is, is, been enhanced obviously with modern technology and um you know and i think one one way i, I like to think about it is like the way tobias capital dr to tobias capital instead of pondering over pictures and trying to interpret these these hand-drawn pictures one of his his things he went all over england and scotland and wales and took pictures of the um 
uh, actual like the the tombstones of the uh, the the knights and all that stuff and that that stuff the alabaster effigies. Yep, that's the word I was looking for. And those are so accurate. I mean, so accurate down to the strap and the buckles and the mail that it was literally your evidence is right there. And I think, you know, looking at that, and, and that's one approach and one breakthrough. I think people have gotten to tailor the, the armor and, and make it more historical. Um, but yeah, I, I think that and just having modern resources to reproduce some of the stuff and then have the communication um, technology where you can talk to Europe you know, all over the, all over the globe to people and spread the information. So one thing I find interesting about that is, so a lot of what I do like day to day, especially since we've been locked up is you know, I go through and I find, you know, an article about something medieval and I share it, or I find something that may be tangentially inspiring to uh, someone who does living history. And when, as I dig through this you know, research, it, you can see that people have been doing hardcore, proper, we've learned something new about XYZ period in history for the last 60 years. I mean, there are active dig sites in, underneath Sheffield Castle that have produced multiple books of research. And I think the biggest change has been actually the internet mm -hmm. because for the longest time you get so first of all, compared to like a World War II reenactment group, there aren't units until you get like that Burgundian style uniformity of standing units. Your typical medieval quote unit was a personality cult. And that was historically accurate. You had a knight who levied troops and had people who were vassals to him. And when he said, it's time to go to war, people went, well, that's it's time to go. Hopefully I come home alive. And then, you know, he gets called up by the Lord above him and the Lord above him. And, you know, the king at the top is pretty much like, hey, everyone who's got a sword, it's time to go fight. And so medieval groups tended to cluster around somebody who knew a lot about medieval culture. And that problem of, hey, we did it because that other reenactor we know did it was kind of the name of the game for the longest period of time. And as I see influences of access to research and people who are putting up their own videos, people who are putting up articles, access to things like academia.edu and JSTOR and digitizing things like manuscripts so that people can see images that have for the last 300 years been locked in a museum that you have to go travel to see and take grainy pictures of beyond glass. So our biggest strides in, I think, adding authenticity to our impressions has been the Internet's access to actual period sources and the ability to go on manuscript miniatures. In the 80s, you didn't have the ability to literally search by, eth uh, not ethnicity, but like by region and timeline. If you wanted to know what artwork looked like in France in 1420, you can now just, you don't even have to Google it. You go to a website that's designed specifically to show you every picture that was drawn in the margins of a book that we have salvaged or kept. And that has increased the diffusion of knowledge that was kind of already there, but locked up behind closed doors. That's really cool. All right. Yeah, because I mean, there's, I'm sure there was so much study of medieval times 
over the centuries, uh, right? But yeah. so so much of it based on studying things that are like maybe different than what someone is trying to find out if they're trying to find out what the shape of a medieval cooking pot was or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, something that's crucial information for a living historian perspective, but that yeah, it's hard to get that information. Uh, we, we're, we're just we're just lying. We take everything from Braveheart and you know Kingdom of Heaven, <laughs> just just like you, nice. just like you guys take everything from Saving Private Ryan. Like some people do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. It's some, I'm sure it's the same with look. Lord, with Lord of the Rings stuff. is that is medieval history all on its own right there. I mean, that's perfect. But it it is. It's it's. There's like you said. There's been research, you know, that goes back to you know early 1900s 1800s and people were doing this stuff and i think just now the the sheer volume of information that can be put out to everybody and and like like ari was talking about having the actual um sources on in front of them on a computer screen with you know high definition instead of you know a guy who knows a guy you might give you access to the back of the museum for an hour you know and you got you got an hour to try to take as many pictures of, of whatever you want to take a picture of um but yeah definitely more information one of our best resources for things like manuscripts is the cotton library and the cotton library was started in the 1600s by someone who effectively was looking into something that was one generation or two generations above him he was the equivalent of us doing first-hand research of the first world war or and so we have all these manuscripts, but it's only been in the last, what, 15 years that Joe Schmo, not a professor who's allowed behind the curtain, has had any access to these kinds of materials. That's cool. You know, I was, I was listening to some of you, your episodes and uh, listening to some stuff that like really resonated with me in terms of commonality with World War II reenacting. And one of the things is just like trying to reenact in the heat. Uh-huh. Because uh, the climate is different now in Europe, mm-hmm. and I'm—I know that it was different also during medieval times, right? It was like leading into that like mini ice age mm-hmm. thing that happened. Mm-hmm. There's a small, there was a cooling, yeah. So like, so it seems to me like it's like for okay. So for example, um, look. I do an impression of a German army soldier in World War II. I'm doing like a D-Day event that maybe takes place in July. Um, The D-Day historical scenario calls for me to be wearing a wool uniform. Well, in June, in early June in Normandy, France, now it's in like the 50s, Mm -hmm. the high temperatures during the day. Uh, whereas where I live, even up in the northern part of the United States, in uh, July and August, the average daytime high temperature is like tens of degrees warmer. And so that wool uniform that's historically accurate is also like unbearable to try to, you know, march in or to try to do heavy work in. And I'm sure that you guys must run into the same type of types of things, trying to do medieval impressions in a climate that's probably much warmer than the climate was in what you're portraying historically. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, because if you look at, like, Kansas City, uh, if you go and, and check out, like, your your global equivalency, like, where is someone that ha- where is a place that has a similar weather to you? We're similar to places like Kabul, Afghanistan, and that's not a good weather analog to northern England <laughs> in the middle of a global cooling. Yeah. yeah. So... We definitely have these kinds of of issues, and you know we also have these similar issues in that people were still using wool as their primary 
garment fabric even in the Second World War. But even though, you know, wool will cool you, but the, there's only so much that it can cool you. And the another thing is that there was a lot of layers that were involved in medieval clothing. And while layers are good because you can take layers off when you get too hot, there's there's a ground floor of what is still socially acceptable to wear, which involves a fair number of layers because people were cold most of the time. And it's we don't have the luxury of having porous houses that force us to acclimate to the local weather. You know, I go from the AC to the park for the weekend. And by the time I'm done there, maybe I'm getting used to sweltering 24 hours a day, but it takes a lot of endurance to be able to wear, or even worse, it takes a lot of endurance to be able to wear steel in the sun when it's that hot. And there's, there's actually a lot of reason why we see certain armor styles the way they are with covered with tunics and tabards and surcoats and things. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of both anecdotal and research behind how that was a coping mechanism. If you didn't do that, then you got heat stroke and died. Uh, It's still, weather was still dictated everything, you know, even a battle was dictated by weather, uh, like a dashing court. But I I think you it, it's, it's a modernism that you have to deal with the climate's hotter. Um, but that doesn't mean it wasn't hot in Europe, you know, to their expectations, even though it was a cooler, you know, it's not kingdom of heaven where the beginning of the movie it's in France and it just looks like a, just a horrible, miserable place to live. But, uh, I, I you know, it's, we can adapt just like they adapted in, in a period manner, like rolling down your hose. If you have split hose, you can roll them down your knees or your chausses. You can, you know, strip to your white shirt, and, you know, to your to your braids, your underwear, basically. And, you know, that's what farmers and workers did when it got hot or they didn't want to get their clothes dirty. Uh, but definitely is, uh, you know, <laughs> you don't want to you can only last so long in the heat and the humidity, especially down here in southeast Georgia or even Kansas, Kansas City, where, where Ben and Reese are. You know, it gets I fought with armor with them there. The summers get humid and hot, too. And it's just it, it killed many a man, you know. In the mil, you know, in the armies of the Middle Ages, just like it still does now, it can heat can get you and it creeps up on you fast. Uh, but yeah, wool, wool. I mean, you got to think too. Think of the Europeans when they came over initially to, you know, and they started colonizing. Those guys downgraded. And I was talking to uh, at Days and Nights about two, two, three years ago with a guy who does um, uh, conquistador and kind of stuff. That they came in and they went up to all the way into Kentucky and and they actually modified you know, their, their outfits, they, they adapted to the new weather of the new world. And, uh, they got rid of all that heavy armor. They had kept the breastplate, maybe, uh, the, their helmet, uh, the shield, but they're, they rolled their pants down. They had, you know, at night they would have to put long sleeves, you know, they would keep them baggy and loose so the mosquitoes don't get them. Um, so it's, it's crazy to see the, you know, the, them adapt to their environment as they go on. Um, uh, and, 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 and it's the same as an event we would downgrade, just like they would have downgrade, you know, everyone, I don't think they would wear even on campaign, even in cool weather, just like a modern army or in your armies, when you're in camp, you, you can downgrade, you know, and I'm pretty sure those guys, just like we do in the army is we take our top off and relax, you know, after a long March or, or whatever. And it's, but yeah, the, the weather now is a big, big difference. What we used to do days and nights, uh, out just outside, uh, um, Clarksville in, uh, Tennessee, 
Kentucky border and it was still October. It was, it was early October. And you would think October, the leaves are brown, especially you, up in New England. You know, the leaves are turned, they're falling, it's cool weather. You got those chilly nights, uh, chilly mornings. But we were in uh, Oak Grove Park in this, just outside Clarksville in October. And man, A, the bugs <laughs> are still there. Don't get oh, me man, started things, about you know, the bugs. You, you can. You have to break character and uh, go get the deet and get it off you, but uh, it was just oh, man. so... I looked like a plague victim. <laughs> but it was just so hot. Yeah, it was just so hot that as I'm talking to somebody, you know, I have and, and, and I would think lighter stuff on as a, as a soldier, uh, but I'm talking and, and just constantly pouring sweat down my forehead, you know, it's like uh, I took my, you know, my head covering off and, uh, you know, eventually by the end of the day, it's I'm in my hose, oh, my undershirt, and that's it. You know, just trying to stay stay cool. I, that's the only time I've I've left a event in the middle. Like I just I had to go to a truck stop and shower with cold water just so I like my brain could function again. It itched so bad. It was it was miserable. I still say site fee needs to cover crop dusting it from now on, but they the board has not the privy council has not heeded my recommendation so what did they have for bug repellent in medieval times is there any way of knowing was it some kind of herb or mm -hmm. yeah you know were, were bugs different i mean how did that work for them it's the, they, they had you know herbs you know oils incenses uh i couldn't tell you exactly what it is but the same i think they this the trial air throughout the, since the roman times you know uh just throughout what were hey why don't the bugs hang around that bush you know let's Let's chew this up and make it, you know, boil it down to an oil. Uh, like lemongrass, you know, lemongrass here. We use lemongrass as a, uh, that's all it is. It's just water and, and some, some lemongrass essence you spray on yourself and the bugs go away. Yeah, I can't recall off the top of my head exactly, but I've read at least, there were a lot of cookbooks mm -hmm. doubled as like tomes of medicinal knowledge yeah. and a lot of books that were like how to brew alcohol were also how to you know, make poultices or you know, to make restorative drafts that were supposed to help you out. Some of them were clearly nonsense and some of them, yeah, they weren't all that bad, but I've read a couple different everything. They had things that were like salves, but they also had things that were very similar to what you think of today as like smudging or perfuming, which was, you know, going back to, to burning specific combinations of, you know, loose incense to try and get your clothes to hold this smell that would help repel. And it depends on really the hard part with medieval. And we haven't really hit that point yet is that when you say World War II, you're talking about a very narrow number of years. And when we talk about medieval, we're talking about a thousand years that technically qualify mm -hmm. as true. medieval. So you can you can have this particular recipe that was like, oh, man, this works really well. Well, maybe if it came from a 14th century French manuscript, there's no reason why your 11th century Italian crusader would have any idea how that worked. So that's a kind of a problem that we have sometimes because we say the word medieval and then we're like, OK, but now let's actually talk about what you mean, because the word medieval means nothing. So it's like for us, Ari and I, we do beginning of 15th century stuff. Uh, so you're looking at 14 to 1415, 1420, because that time period is completely different from 1450 you know 1475 it's the, the technology and the uh the resources just skyrocket and it, and you know the arms race from the hundred year war created such you know vast armament and science that it just blossomed and, and went forward um 
so that's one thing is you know you guys would have like i think pre-war or like early war mid-war late war um we we have a thousand years to talk about <laughs> i can't even imagine i mean you could have two people to do medieval reenactment and it's like they're totally different cultures right totally different time yeah. period totally different lifestyles uh like the days and nights uh they do a timeline an armor timeline and it starts from the romans and you say with well, the romans well you know the, the fall of rome entered into that dark age you know beginning of pre-middle you know middle ages um and then at, at that other edge you have you know uh maybe an early you know 16th century maybe 16th century type harness uh you know suit of armor and it's like and, and one thing you know joe the one of the, the the founders was like where where do you think you know king arthur is in this timeline and everyone looks at the guy in the far right or the ends you know full armor glistening you know you know knight in shining armor kind of look and he's like no they're he's right here and it's barely any armor you know it's maybe some mail and a helmet and, and a shield but uh and it's it's crazy to think that everyone thinks the middle ages of that far right period and it's like even when you have four or five of us it's like that's my great great grandfather's armor you know if i was alive in that time period so it, it's 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 a vast and then not only timeline vast cultural vast you know the middle ages in africa asia you know there's stuff going on too but you know everyone thinks they're just western europe during that time period uh, speaking of like the Western Europe thing, uh, something else I was thinking about that was a kind of parallel between World War II reenacting the way I do it, right, where I do German and Soviet impressions, and uh, what you guys do is the challenge of portraying something that's a totally different culture, right? I mean, I know that like people who do Revolutionary War or Civil War in America, the, the culture of that time was very different than the culture of our time, but they were nevertheless Americans, mm -hmm. you know, they so they get to portray stuff like you know, obviously a Civil War reenactor might get to do events on the original battlefield, uh, whereas for the stuff that I do, and I know for the stuff that you guys do, that's not really possible. And a lot of times the places that we have to do events are like not even necessarily a very good stand-in geographically for, you know, what, what ha the actual place where the real action took place or whatever it was. Um, but I think that's I think that's cool, right? It's like a a little bit of an extra challenge, I think, especially where you're looking at things that might be in a different language. I know for some of the stuff that you guys do, probably the English language is is a different language, oh, yeah. you know, in that time. I mean, if you just want to look at quote English speaking areas, you have the pre-Norman Anglo-Saxon Old English, which was practically a form of German. And then, of course, the Norman conquests introduced a lot of French into the language. And then a, the Sac native Saxon language became the, the peasant tongue and the French became the aristocracy. So more and more people wanted to talk like the rich folks. So you get this infusion of French into the English. And then the, the language of learning was still Latin. So you have this very you have this sort of German-based, French-influenced language by the Middle Ages when we think of, like, the 1400s, which is still has a, a hefty Latin-Italian flair to the pronunciation. And that's that's the point at which you're even starting to vaguely understand it as English. And then it's only another 150 years before you get to what we think of, like, Shakespearean Elizabethan English, and even that requires a lot of training to fully comprehend. So what I find interesting about it is that 
in regular in the regular world and you know in college I'm studying philosophy and I find that there's a lot of application of studying like the the history of philosophy and the philosophy of religion to our medieval practice because it's one of those ways in which you can get a a mind's eye into what the basic pers- cultural perspective of this culture might be outside of just literature and arms and armor. So, but they, the, the actual values and what people would take for given as right or wrong or reasonable to even ask questions about are starkly different than what even you know a generation or two ago in the Second World War would have assumed was as something that you could even think about in the first place. Sure. And I think on the, uh, on, on the other side of just not being on the ground, you know, you look at, you look at the groups in Europe, uh, that's their, their culture, that's their history. And it's like, we share it by that link of our ancestors, but we're always jealous when we see great events and actual, you know, an actual castle or grounds of the actual you know, event that took place. Um, it's kind of like having, you know, a reenactment for a World War II battle site or a Revolution War, having, you know, or the Civil War, American Civil War on the sites. It's, it's, it's always that, man, I wish we had it, you know, and, but it's funny because you talk to guys in England who do, do American Civil War, um, reenactment and it's like they're, they're like, oh man, you guys got all the good stuff. So it's like, well, we can trade, you know, come on over and we'll go over there, you know, so, but it, it is, it's, it's, on a, you know, it's learning another culture, um, not trying to influence that culture with modern or modern culture and th- way of thinking, and then just jealousy of not having the actual ground to actually host these events or, or you know, to do it and have that, uh, that look, that aesthetics behind it. You know, if you want to accurately represent Agincourt, you need thousands of people, which, you know, sometimes you're trying to tap the number of reenactors in the hobby globally in one event, whereas there are situations where you could have, I think, I'm guessing, considered a mass battle with, you know, maybe 50, 60, or 100 people because you're all spaced apart shooting at each other. So it's not like you have to get in close and really pack the field to look like some of these really memorable conflicts. I mean, obviously, you need a lot of people to do, like, the Battle of Stalingrad, but that's... Well, we have I like guess, the kind of the opposite problem where the ranges at uh, World War II reenactment are kind of necessarily too close because at the real ranges at which those actions took place, in many cases, you like barely are seeing the other side. You know, you're firing indirect fire or unaimed shots at people a great distance away. Um, and there's not really a way to kind of interpret that, you know, in a, in a tactical sort of a way. So... How big is medieval reenacting? I mean, the biggest events, I mean, I guess what medieval reenacting is could kind of be open to debate a little bit, right? Because I know there are some things, you know, some of my friends do like some SCA, like Penzik Wars stuff, you know, and their kits range from being historically correct to like Mad Max looking stuff, you know? So so the SCA is, is a, you know, a medieval activity. It's more of a game. Uh, I think you, they, they talk about it has it's the game, uh, and it covers a broad period. And um, it's not, you know, it's not as they, they they strive for historical research, but not much accuracy. It's not really, you know, enforced that, and you know, but it's again, you have some SEA people that are really they really want to do a great impression. Then you have others just kind of like, eh, I don't want uh, this is good enough. 
but they the one thing they have is they have the numbers and they can they can put a lot of people on a field and conduct a medieval battle type event um where you have the the, the visual numbers because they have mass make and, and Penzik is one of them they have you know thousands of people on the field um you have you have larping you know some historical larping you have some fantasy larping um again some with some historical medieval influence you know um have numbers you know either some big larping events uh but when it comes to authentic you know medieval reenactment uh battle pageants and stuff like that it's the numbers aren't really that aren't there yeah and that's the thing about penzik is that being a even though they have in excess of say ten thousand people at an event their people one they're across the entire u.s pooling together mm-hmm. so it's effectively the big convention for everyone in their organization to go but they also are covering the timeline from antiquity to 1600 and when you're looking at things like the actual reenactment for the 600th year of Agincourt, where everyone was trying to be in the same time period, they managed to get a about 800 people together um, for one of those. And so that's when you're looking at medieval reenactment and you want to break it down by time period, you're looking at each time period, maybe across the U S not to include like Russia and Ukraine, which has a huge medieval living history scene that I just I just don't have like numbers or concept for. But in the U.S., when you're looking at if you try and break it down by time period, sure you might have a couple thousand people across the U.S. who are doing like Plantagenet era, or you know a couple a thousand or so who are doing Agincourt, or maybe you have two thousand who are really into Richard Crusades. And yeah, we might hit those tens of that ten thousand plus reenactors nationwide, but they're scattered again across this timeline. Wherein any one battle that you try and react, or anyone trying to one event that you try and narrow down to a more reasonable time frame, where there's not huge anachronisms with one person dressing, you know, two generations away from another, it's really hard to get more than a couple hundred people at most to these events. That's interesting. It's very similar to World War II where if you're going to have a huge event, you have to make some authenticity compromises mm-hmm. or you can choose to have a really strict event uh, with extremely high authenticity standards, but you're not going to attract enough people. And, uh, you know, there's a certain scale that you really kind of need in order to make certain types of portrayals realistic. Yeah, I um, agree. It's, it's, it's a hard balance. It's a hard balance because you don't want to, you want people to participate. You want people to join. You want you want to have a, a good event, but at the same time, where do you stop? If you put the brakes and say, "Okay, that's not that's not what we want here," and then you know feelings get hurt, and you know next thing you know, people oh they're not inclusive. They don't. It's just. But at the same time, you're trying to do it to have a good event, you know, where everyone will have a good time and be immersed in the uh, the the actual activity. You know, and it's the same thing like with groups here, you know, you will have oftentimes the largest groups are groups that tend to have more slack authenticity standards. This isn't always the case, but generally, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got groups that have extremely high authenticity standards, but maybe they're, they are, they have less than 20 guys. Yeah. Um, So that, that limits what they can do. 
um, you know, it is, it, it can be tough. I think yep. it sounds it, like in general, medieval reenacting is a little bigger, which is cool. I would love to see uh, World War II reenacting grow. We, we have a few events that have more than a thousand people that attend, but those are f- few and far between and they have to cast a really wide net to get that, to get those numbers at all. And like uh, a lot of events that we do probably have less than a hundred people. Um, and the scenario kind of has to be structured around knowing that you don't really have um, battalion-sized elements that can go against each other, and mm-hmm. that the numbers have, the numbers are smaller, and so you're portraying, you know, a, a reconnaissance element or whatever it has to, happens to be. Yeah, I'm actually I have a survey out there that I'm trying to get people to to take to see really what is the size of an average group because we have a lot of we have a lot of opinions about how other people reenact without really going and seeing how they, they play their, their game, except sometimes when we bump up at events together. And I also think that if I can get enough reception to this survey, it will give me a better idea of how many living history folk there are compared to the generic medieval type activity practitioner that we have out here. And someday if I ever finish this survey, uh, one man versus the world. I might have a better answer for that. I love your phrase, "general medieval type activity practitioner." Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's an all inclusive title. There. <laughs> There's so many things that reenacting is, you know, and even in World War II reenacting, like there can definitely, I think, be a difference between being a reenactor and being a general World War II activity practitioner. <laughs> um, it kind of sounds like. Sounds like the uh, the like broader medieval sphere is almost like a blessing and a curse for you guys, where that's mm-hmm. like an obvious fertile ground that you can draw people from. But at the same time, there are probably people who would be interested in real historical reenactment, but who wind up doing something less than that or something different from that, right? Because mm-hmm. they can go to they could just get dressed up and go to Renaissance Fair as a as a paying spectator, right? Yeah. And just eat, you know, eat the food and drink the meat or whatever it is, you know. And that's what our podcast is kind of about too, is putting people in the right direction um, to that specific medieval type event or, you know, activity that they can that that's what they want. You know, like if you want to cast a spell or be an elf dressed medievalish, you, know, you have warping. If you want to uh do mass combat with uh bamboo sticks and, you know, be, have a persona with a name and you, you speak in an accent and the SEA is for you. Yeah, like there's a wide variety of viewpoints in uh, World War II reenacting about like LARP and whether or not what we are doing is LARPing. You've got people who totally embrace it and are like, yeah, this is World War II LARPing. I am literally live action role playing a World War II soldier. What else would you call it? Mm-hmm. You've got some people who um, will say, well, look, I will never do first person. I think it's dorky. You know, I don't want to actually talk like I am a soldier. You know, for me, it's about wearing the gear and, and using it the way it's supposed to be used and talking to the public or whatever mm-hmm. and you know and you've got people who are kind of pro the larp concept anti the larp concept and i imagine it must be uh kind of different and weirder for you guys right where medieval larp specifically is this existing big thing and you know what what's your take on that are you guys larpers do you draw a hard line I mean, or, in a, or what's your thought in about a way it? aren't we all i mean <clears throat> we're we're trying to portray yeah, something that i think so that we're not really you know my my day job is not a, a 14 10 english foot soldier on campaign in, in france you know but i think it's 
that LARP instantly makes you a dungeon, a basement bunny. You know, you think you're you're out there playing Warlock the Wizard, and it's not. It, it, you know, it's just that I think that title turns people off, LARPing, live action role-playing. In a way, you are kind of role-playing that persona of, you know, even if you just wear the gear and and talk. I mean, you asked my wife. I'm a big dork. I'm a big LARPer. I think just that title turns people off you know that larping but it's in a way you know i talked to ian lasfina about it too it's like we, we are sort of all kind of larping because we're playing dress up in a way um i don't do i don't first person it's hard for me to do too um you know uh I, I don't do an accent at events i like to educate this is what this is why i'm wearing it this is what they did this is the weapons you know the, the martial aspect um but some people like to do that you know that's that's what they they want to do and some people do it well chris as you've described in the past what you consider a reenactment versus sort of just going out and having fun in your kit is in some ways what a lot of people might think of a description of live action role play in which you know you have a scenario you have an objective you're trying to you're trying to make a specific activity or event happen or see what it what you how you might go through the the motions of doing that particular objective and you know a lot of people say that live action role playing is is only when you have a a story and what i found that really is a a better defining line between whether or not you just have a story or not because uh, honestly if you're just at some point we're all playing pretend and then those if those differences don't have a meaning then how do we how do we differentiate between the types of activities that people, different types of people really enjoy? So when you have a moderated story in the way that there is somebody behind the scenes who's not part of the reenactment, who's helping move you through the story, the effectively a really big dress up mystery dinner theater that you can get and, and play at home when you have somebody who's moderating the event in such a way that they're kind of telling a story or pushing you through a story, that's when you start, that's when I really start to think that you've hit the point of LARPing. And I don't, I don't use LARPing as a a pejorative. I don't think there's anything wrong with LARPing. I think it sounds like in its own way, it's a whole lot of fun. It's just a different kind of fun. Most World War II reenactments aren't actually really reenactments of anything that really happened in the sense that like, you know, you've got, um, it's not like most of this stuff is based around, okay, on such and such a day at such and such a time, a group of 60 people encountered an enemy group of 60 people, <laughs> and the duration of the battle was this long, and this was the outcome, and this was the number of people that died. You know, it's it's very often, you know, we'll do an event that's kind of based on a historical place and time, right? Based on a campaign. Mm -hmm. But what actually happens at the event is kind of up to who shows up and what they want to do and what the event organizer kind of comes up with that works for the terrain, for the people that are there. Um, And I've I've had this discussion with other reenactors where they say, well, what I'm doing isn't LARP because I'm doing something that really happened and LARP is doing something that's a fantasy. But it's like, if you're pretending to Uh be a German infantry officer who is you know, going into a, a, ca- a cafe in France in 1944 or something. I mean, can you tell me the exact historical personage <laughs> and the exact date and time and the location of the cafe where this specific action, this specific activity actually happened? Of course not. So it's like, yeah, you know, it, we are, there is a make-believe aspect of it. There yeah. always is. There always will but be. But that title, LARPing, live action role playing, instantly groups you into that 
that stereotypical, you know, with elves ears, you know, guys dressed in orc masks and stuff. And I got to tell you, some of that stuff in Russia and Ukraine, some of their LARPing events are just ridiculously awesome. <laughs> they have some cool, cool stuff. If you're like a fantasy war gamer or anything like that, they have some stuff that's really, really cool. Well, there's a there's like a, a Comic Con Planet Planicon thing that happens down in the downtown Kansas City every year, and sometimes we'll go in our medieval outfits or our armor, kind of as a as a joke. But I guess in some ways the the joke is on us because we're we're really not doing anything different than they are. We're just because we're, none of us are portraying historical figures, and that's that's what goes back to one of those free expression things that uh, kind of differentiates us from the World War Two is that we we can individualize our outfit to the point where it's clear that this person never existed, and I don't try and say that the the person that I portray with the clothes that I'm wearing and bearing the you know turnip ever actually existed i know they don't and intentionally they don't because i don't want to portray an individual person for a whole you know i wrote like an entire article on why i don't and go on for an hour but that's not my goal and so in a way we're just sort of portraying someone who might have been and so that's effectively a character in a story that i made up about you know, some historical fiction in my own head. And how is that any different than cosplaying historical fiction that made it onto TV? You know, I don't portray a real historical person. I know Lassa doesn't portray a real historical person. Very few reenactors do. And I think it's very challenging for those that do. When someone is portraying General Patton or they're trying to portray their own grandfather or something, it's that's almost a totally different expression of historical mm-hmm. reenacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's that take that that's the level they want to bring it, you know, and I think there's an event, you know, like anything else, there's an event for everyone's taste. Um, and not every event is for everyone's, you know, not for everybody. Um, one thing I did want to ask you guys that, uh, I wanted to make sure I included this cause I'm genuinely, genuinely curious about this. Uh, it has to do with like buying kit stuff. Like, uh, obviously the major parts of my uniform and my equipment and the belt buckle, all this has to be purchased from specialized vendors, but I could go to, like an antique store or even something like an Ikea sometimes and I might be able to get a cooking pot or a milk can or you know cutlery or something that I can use for my own impression or for my encampment or outpost or whatever it is. I mean, what is that like for medieval stuff? Do you have to buy every single thing from from specialized vendors? The majority of clothes are that way and when it comes to the some of the things that you can kind of get away with is more the camp stuff, and that has a lot to do with the fact that we have a huge resurgence, or at least we did for a while, in a lot of like the the back to primitive, you know, old way is better trends. And so you can find a lot of just unglazed earthenware pottery that works because people have intentionally, even if they're not trying to make it a historical object for reenactment, you culturally they're like well this was made you know like in the olden days when people made everything better and you can find a lot of like cast iron wrought iron things that work well enough especially depending on where your authenticity meter runs but clothing wise you can't really get much and it's it's probably the same case as the uniform the only difference is like we talked about before 
the fact that you can make things. Well, you can go online to Be Black and Sons and you can buy 100% twill wool that is indistinguishable except for the fact that it was made on machine and not from hundreds of hours of peasant labor. And even then, sometimes if you go to the wrong distributor, it's still hundreds of hours of hand <laughs> peasant labor. You can get a piece of material that is indistinguishable from what you would have been able to find in period and you just make something out of it. So you have access to a lot of commercially available items, but a problem with some of it is that you have to develop that eye first to know what is just sort of looks medieval enough and what really has that original type form and shape and substance to it. So the majority of clothing items do require you to go somewhere that knows how to make them. Because if you go to whatever the current iteration of the Ren store or Shiv store is, you're going to get a lot of, ooh, pirate peasant shirts and things like that that don't, they don't do you any good whatsoever. And there are lots, you know, there's, everyone has their, their favorite websites for historically authentic clothing. And if you don't make it, you really do have to go find these specific people to buy yeah, it from. Yeah. Thank God for Ukraine and Poland because uh, they do a lot. Uh, a lot of vendors over there do a lot of great stuff. And uh, my mailman for a long time you know, <laughs> says, you buy a lot of stuff from, from Europe. So uh, I was like, ah, yeah, it's just a bunch of junk. But, you know, it, 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 it definitely is, you know, you have to, the, sort, the, 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 the vendors are out there. Um, it's just like any, any specialized hobby, you have to kind of find it. Um, and then you have to definitely vet it and, uh, make sure that you're buying, you know, something that's, uh, you know, historically accurate and all that good stuff. Uh, you know, a, a cast iron pot from the 16th century, you know, though close, you know, in, you know, uses and, uh, material isn't the same as what they would have in the 15th century. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah, that's the same thing, very similar with World War II reenacting. We do have to buy a lot of stuff from Europe, and uh, especially my Soviet impression, almost all of that stuff comes from the former Soviet Union, which uh, with this shipping delays that we had this year with the pandemic, it became uh, really agonizing for a little while there, but it seems like things are kind of back to normal. Do you guys use any original stuff? Like, does, do medieval reenactors use anything that is from medieval times? Some do. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe has a ring that was a he he bought. It was an actual archaeological find, and it's a twelfth century ring, and he wears it at events. And but the problem is that the the fact that there are so mm -hmm. few historical artifacts, the majority of them are in things like the Wallace Collection, or they're part of a museum exhibit. There's a vanishingly small number that are available, even if you have the money. To do that, like even if you could afford not only to purchase, say, a sword you found in a river that was, you know, refurbished and rehilted, and it was an original blade from the 13th century, if, one, if you could buy it in the first place because it doesn't already belong to some state government as a historical artifact, and then to be able to be financially secure enough to like carry it around and hope it doesn't get rained on and rust. I mean, I don't see a lot of it out there. You see little bits and pieces, but very little. I only, the only thing I've ever personally been able to, to be physically in contact with is Joe's ring. I've never seen a, a medieval artifact outside of that ring. I, I think, I think you see most stuff is small, small stuff. Uh, 
bits of mail, um, you know, buttons, belt, belt buckles, um, hooks for, you know, capes or whatever, various things. So, and, and the thing is, you know, during the Victoria age and later, there is a lot of fraud, um, stuff that they wanted for nationalism, you know, just, oh, look at this. This is, a, this is an authentic helmet from the whatever, whatever. Um, so you kind of get that fraud base. So it's really hard to authenticate. Um, and, and get stuff that is legitimate. But uh, for the stuff that I've seen through friends who know friends, um, it's, it was like the coolest stuff that I, I got to see secondhand through pictures is like spurs, you know, actual spurs and, and uh, you know, buttons and stuff like that, and scraps of mail. So that's just the, the common collector, I think, has the smaller stuff. And then once you get into like the Wallace collection, we have the, the, the large big you know high dollar items and stuff like that so but on a daily basis I, I i don't i personally don't own anything that's you know authentic from that time period so sadly <laughs> that's cool it's totally different you know yeah we we have all kinds of original stuff you know all of our weapons are original there's like no way around it really or most of our stuff most of our weapons are original well, all right, guys. Um, I'm sure we could talk about this stuff for another <laughs> untold number of hours. I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you guys very much. But if we keep going, our editor is going to be furious. I mean, I've been listening for, I, don't know, I think I started at episode 9 or 10. So it's a real thrill to be able to come and talk to you guys. Oh, yeah. It's great to see. It's great to see that we share, no matter what time period, we share some of the, the struggles and the successes, you know, in, in our respective time periods it's great and just to, just to talk history you know shop with others you know enthusiasts is great it's such a cool perspective you guys have because so much of it is so relatable and similar but like different you know and it's it, it, different in a in a greater or smaller way so it's it's cool to imagine uh kind of what it must be like and uh gives me some more perspective for my own world war ii stuff Thank you very much, guys, and uh, I will uh, I will close with I will see you in the field. <laughs> see you in the field. Thanks for having us. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, aka Retro Man, for editing this podcast.